0: Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. For my paid admission, the best movie of 1997 was P.T. Anderson's sophomore feature Boogie Nights. a domestic melodrama set in the x-rated film industry beginning in the late 1970s and stretching into the video revolution of the early 1980s its co-nominees for best picture should have been the full monty la confidential goodwill hunting and liar liar and titanic should have been restricted to the crafts and music-based and directorial awards that it eventually won in a clean sweep As it was, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences named James Cameron's hugely expensive, long-delayed Titanic the Oscar winner and gave up any sense of good judgment by caving to the biggest commercial success in the history of movies through 1997. Don't misunderstand me. It's not that Titanic lacks accomplishment. In fact, its revolutionary quality as a visual, aural, and editing leap forward in the emerging Digiscape is and was so visionary that its once sui generis presence has become the standard by which current popular culture is presently judged, whether in the form of impossible-to-build sets and disasters, think anything in the Fast and Furious story world, or the presentation of overbearing pop ballads as substitution for emotionally realistic performances, as in any Disney live-action remake. Titanic really is two entertainment forms packed into one high-gloss sheen. Its first two hours, or so, presents a corny and cliché romance. But the final hour is where Cameron offers us a breathtaking clinic and cinematic invention that defies adequate description. Titanic opens in 1996, when nautical adventurer Brock Lovett, played by Bill Paxton, searches for a gigantic blue diamond called the Heart of the Ocean in the real Titanic's wreckage upon the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. When he finds a suggestive drawing of a nude woman wearing the Heart of the Ocean, Lovett interviews Titanic survivor Rose Dawson, played as an old woman by Gloria Stewart, who once modeled for the drawing, and she is asked to tell her incredible story of Titanic's maiden voyage. We flow backwards in time to 1912, where we get a clear impression of class divisions and British-American rivalry. We also meet Jack Dawson, Leonardo DiCaprio, who gambles his way onto the ship's steerage class, even as 17-year-old Rose DeWitt Bucator, Kate Winslet, heads into a marriage of convenience with a rogue named Cal Hockley, Billy Zane, heir to a steel fortune and the answer to her mother's financial troubles. When Rose half-heartedly attempts to kill herself, Jack saves her, only to become Cal's rival for Rose's affection and thereby the foil for us to watch how wealth and poverty animate early 20th century society in a parade of designed vignettes about how to reconstruct the historic past. From that point, the movie concerns itself with the final day on board Titanic as Rose and Jack fall in love among various misadventures meant to confuse and infuriate Cal before the fateful iceberg is sighted on the night of April 14th, 1912. Then the film kicks into high gear and sidelines its laughable script and, frankly, unimportant people problems to depict the ship's sinking and the horrors met by its 2,200 passengers. By realistically detailing Titanic's collapse and sinking, no sentimental image is left untouched. We see the ship's string quartet play itself out into the night of a shipwreck. We see an old man and an old woman share a bed, accepting their doom in a quiet embrace. We see a steerage mother who, unable to get on deck, puts her children to sleep in their bunks. And we see the ship itself cracking in half, a smokestack breaking off. And then the whole ship sinking into the ocean, leaving hundreds of life-jacketed survivors bobbing in the water with too few lifeboats to pick them up. Naturally, Rose is among these survivors, but not our dear Jack, who sacrifices himself for her sake that she go on living, always and forever remembering their briefest love affair in the middle of one of the greatest maritime disasters in the history of the world. Back in the present day, Brock calls off his efforts to find the heart of the ocean, and 101-year-old Rose climbs out to the deck of his ship where she faces the great, wide Atlantic once again alone. She reveals possession of the vaunted and long-concealed blue diamond, and she casts it off into the deep as Celine Dion sings. My heart will go and... Tears flowed, and audiences swooned. It's a shame, really. What a dumb movie Titanic actually is when considering all its technical marvels. Aside from James Cameron's work as writer, co-editor, director, and co-producer, there's James Horner as composer, Russell Carpenter as cinematographer, a visual effects group led by Thomas L. Fisher and Robert Legato, and the groundbreaking work of a sound recording mixing and engineering team led by multiple Oscar winner Gary Rydstrom. The film also features wonderful supporting performers, at least when their work is judged across their varied and long careers, including the likes of Kathy Bates, Francis Fisher, and Bernard Hill. Plus, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet have good chemistry, while Billy Zane fills out their menage a trois, using the right combination of villainous indifference and a sense of personal superiority due to his class. In other words, he's a real snot. Still, You should keep in mind the film's final budget of $200 million, roughly equivalent to $350 million today. At one point, in mid-1996, when it was clear Titanic was wildly out of control and didn't have enough money to finish, its release date was postponed in a cloud of industry gossip concerning cost overruns and general waste. Cameron's production company, Lightstorm Entertainment, was forced to negotiate a partnership for completion money with 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures, nearly becoming the biggest boondoggle in Hollywood history. For a little while, in fact, it was possible that the film would never be finished, at least not in a form to please a large audience, leaving many curious cinephiles like me to wonder if there was or was not a fair comparison here to Michael Cimino's ill-fated Heaven's Gate from 1980. That older film is often referenced as a cautionary tale of artistic license run amok because it was a much-anticipated, extremely expensive movie that, when it failed commercially, triggered the bankruptcy of United Artists, a once-venerable movie studio. When Titanic blew open the doors of multiplexes across the world, beginning on December 19, 1997, it didn't leave theaters until October 1998, not including three subsequent re-releases and its lasting life in multiple home video versions, from VHS tape through various streaming content providers. And Titanic was an unusual feature film for any mainstream exhibitor to showcase because it runs over three hours in length, thereby shortening the daily prospects for screenings by at least one show. The film's budget, including its marketing campaign, also meant that the break-even point for this extremely expensive, long, and delayed movie was nearly half a billion dollars in gross box office revenue. Yet, Titanic worked. Audiences forgave all its faults to embrace its spectacle. Likewise, people found a romantic ideal in Jack and Rose that made icons of DiCaprio and Winslet. I'll never let go. I promise An interest in Titanic as a natural accident, motion picture, and eventually a Broadway musical made it the leading cultural signifier of 1997, bar none. And this was also the year the U.K. ceded Hong Kong to China, Princess Diana died in a car crash, Mike Tyson bit off part of Evander Holyfield's year, and Dolly the Sheep was cloned. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.